0: We hope you're blessed and inspired by today's message. God bless you. Here's the message. Praise the living Jesus. We thank God for another opportunity to be in God's presence this morning. And um, we will be commencing the service with our growth track as is our custom. For some few months, we've been in the book of Joel and just having some very short um, Bible study-like conversations through that book. As of last week, we have gotten to Joel chapter two, verse 14, so today we are moving on to verses 15 to 17. Joel chapter two, verses 15 to 17, It reads, blow the ram's horn trumpet in Zion. Declare a day of repentance, a holy fast day. This is the message translation. Call a public meeting. Get everyone there. Consecrate the congregation. Make sure the elders come. But bring in the children too, even the nursing babies, even men and women on their honeymoon. Interrupt them and get them there. Between sanctuary entrance and altar, let the priests, God's servants, let them weep tears of repentance. Let them intercede, saying, have mercy, God, on your people. Don't abandon your heritage to contempt. Don't let the pagans take over and rule them and slay, saying, and so where is this God of theirs? May the Lord bless the reading of his word for the salvation of our souls in Jesus' name. We have titled today's study, a solemn assembly, a solemn assembly, which is literally what um, Joel is prescribing here by prophecy. Um, if you'd recall, we've been on this journey trying to track right from chapter one uh, the situation that was going on. Remember, the general theme for this study is the invasion of low costs, and which doesn't sound funny <laughs> or attractive <laughs> as a title. But what we're basically doing is squeezing out everything, every drop of heavenly juice from that uh, book of the Bible and just learning as we go along. In chapter 2, we've considered the following topics, blowing the trumpet in Zion, that's from verse 1, and then we looked at the army of God that was described in the beginning of that chapter. Um, even though while we know that this is not an army that is coming to do something positive, we don't worry, we are all, we are all here, amen. He's also having his own service. Um, we teased out some very important principles that we could learn from that army that was described, even when what they are coming to do is more destructive than constructive. But because they are referred to as the army of God, they kind of give us a picture, a template of how we are supposed to be God's army, unleashing terror on the kingdom of darkness. And then we looked at true repentance, whereby we discussed what repentance should really look like. And last week, we discussed the controversial subject or question of, is it true or does God change his mind? And we gave that a balance last week. Today, we're just moving on to that next um, paragraph, if you will, from that chapter and looking at this solemn assembly that um, Joel by prophetic message is asking the people to observe. And we want to just bring out two or three lessons from that. The very first one is that salvation and a relationship with God is for everyone. If you would notice in the passage we just read, the prophet specifically mentioned different categories of people and by the time you look at those categories of people you discover that there is nobody in the community that is exempted we are calling for a national repentance day if you will that was what he was doing but he intentionally ensured that they got the point that nobody should be left out of this of course in our own context and day perhaps we are not facing an issue that We are not in a context where we are necessarily calling for a national or nationwide repentance. But of course, you are a nation. I am a nation. Do you believe that? And God is often calling us in different ways, having specific dealings with our lives. But one of the things we talked about in chapter one, which is now coming again in this very paragraph, is the issue of ensuring that we carry everybody along. In fact, one of the rules of conduct in the apostolic church is that when you come to church, you're supposed to come with your family members. If you have house helps, you come with them. If you have maid servants or whatever, you come with them. Because, it it, it, hence by saying, because they also have souls to be saved like yours. In other words, salvation and a relationship with God is for everyone, everyone. And, of course, there's a group of people that was mentioned there that you might find striking. They said, those that are on their honeymoon, interrupt them and bring them. And you might be wondering, why did they need to mention that? (laughs) And I thought to just dig in a little bit on that. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5, this is God's word, God's prescription to God's people um, post-marriage. When a man is newly married, he must not be sent into the army. And he must not be given any other special work. For one year, he must be free to stay home and make his new wife happy. How many of you would like to leave that out? (laughs) How many of our married men and women stayed home for one year after marriage? (laughs) But, I mean, there is something to tease out from that. Even if it is not in a literal sense, it shows that there is every necessity, especially at the foundations of marriage, for both the man and the woman to invest intentionally in being one, in being together, in you know structurally setting the temperature or the template that the home will be built upon. Um, I just thought to add that as a teaser. The second lesson we want to take from that is that Prayer for restoration, or in this case, for repentance and all that, should not be mistaken for blackmailing God. Um, And I'll explain what I mean by that. If you look at the content of the prayer, let's go back to it. The content of the prayer, the last paragraph in yellow. Have mercy, God, on your people. Why should He have mercy? Don't abandon your heritage to content. In other words, we are your people. Don't abandon us. If you abandon us, then it goes on to say, the pagans will take over and rule us, and then they will snare and say, where is your God? And you know, as biblical as that is, as interesting as that statement is, I mean, in the New covenant context, we are also the people of God. We are part of the commonwealth of Israel, if you could put it that way. Our citizenship is in heaven. God is our father. We are in this new family. And that can get into... I won't say get into our head, but we can misunderstand that to mean God has to treat us in a way that he has to defend his reputation, and that's true. But to also bring the balance that that does not exempt us from other familial responsibilities like discipline and correction and chastisement. Amen. Um, you can't just misbehave and go to God and say, God, if you don't treat me well, people will say, where's my God? You are, you are, you are directing yourself. No, you are directing yourself. You are the one that is short-circuiting, as it were, all the possibilities that you are supposed to be enjoying in God. And so sometimes God may use tough times to correct us, to correct our ways, to refine us, to purify us. And other times he may lead us through those difficult situations into a sort of purification, deepening of our relationship with him and equipping us to become better servants. Um, And the response that we should have should not be, God, how do I get out of this? Even if it means blackmailing you, you can't possibly blackmail God. You know that anyways. Um, And if you don't, now you do. But the correct response should be, God, what do you want me to get out of this? And so why for the covenant uh, people of God in the Old Testament context, namely the Israelites, while they could go to God, and many times they did this. This is not the only time. There was a time God told Moses, I'm going to wipe, them, wipe everyone off and just start again with you. But Moses said, if you do that, what are the people, the surrounding nations, even the Egyptians that you delivered us from, what are they going to say? That you delivered us so that you can come and kill us in the wilderness? And Bible says God repented of what he wanted to do. Again, what we were discussing last week, God changing his mind. But I won't get into that now because we did that last week. But the point there is the overarching principle here for us, especially in the context of dispensation in which we are living in, which is the dispensation of God's grace in the new covenant, we should not take that grace for granted. If anything, it calls us for to live lives that uh that represent the God that has saved us. Finally, when you don't know where to turn, this passage is telling us the one way you surely can turn to, turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. The situation, as we have seen, for those of us that have been following the study from the beginning, it's very graphic and horrible. When a nation has gotten to the point where there is no food. There is no hope of harvest because there is nothing to plant. And you never can tell for how long the havoc will last. It's just like COVID-19. But in the midst of such a context, there is still always one place to turn to. Individually, as a family, as a church, and where possible, as a state, as a community, as a nation. And that's one place to turn to is to turn to God. We know that God is not some sadistic master that would delight in our suffering. If anything, verse 13 tells us he's gracious and merciful, he's slow to hunger, and is of great kindness. He's showing us the character of God. God wants everyone to be saved. God wants everyone to enjoy all of the goodness he has to offer. Very many times we make decisions that don't make it possible to be fully receptive to that, but it doesn't change his character as a God that is interested in seeing us flourish and in seeing us prosper. And we see all these qualities ever so brightly in Jesus, the incarnate Christ, the one, the God that was made flesh, the tangible God, if I could put it that way, the God that some people could literally see, talk to, interact with, and the Gospels reveal to us the heart of Jesus. It's a beautiful heart, one that is willing to die, the ultimate death, for the sacrifice or for the payment for the sins of the whole world. Which brings us to Hebrews 4:15 to 16 as we wrap up. And this is a passage that I have personally found very helpful in my walk with God, um, especially in those early days of you know when you've just been saved and you're thinking that being saved means. You just stop doing all the bad things you used to do. And then you find yourself still doing them. And then you are wondering, am I still saved? Do I need to be saved again and again and again? And then one day the Lord opened my eyes to see the scripture. For Jesus is not some high priest who has no sympathy for our weaknesses and flaws. Why? He has already been tested in every way that I am being tested, that you are being tested. But he emerged victorious without failing God. So if there's anybody that understands how, quote and unquote, susceptible we are to make mistakes, it's Jesus. And then the verse ends by saying in verse 16, So let us, therefore, step boldly to the throne of grace, where we can find mercy and grace to help us when we need it most. So yes, once and again, you will make mistakes. Yes, on this sanctification ongoing um, journey to become more like Christ, you will make mistakes again and again. But when you do, where do you turn to? Go to the throne of grace. And not as someone that is doubting whether he can do that. Your new life in Christ qualifies you to come with boldness. But this is not a blackmailing boldness. <laughs> this is the boldness that comes with humility and eternal gratitude to the Father, that if he could do this for me, if he says the gate is open, if he says the price has been paid, if he says it's finished, then indeed it's finished. If he says there is therefore now no condemnation, then there is therefore now no condemnation. And he's interested in seeing me become better and more like him. And so I'll go boldly to obtain mercy and then to find grace. Mercy pardons you for your errors, Grace empowers you to not fall where you fell yesterday, and with those two in our asana, in our walk of faith, the sky is the starting point. In conclusion, any questions before we conclude and pray? Or Any contributions? Yeah. In conclusion, we need not walk alone. Um, just. An allusion to Liverpool FC. We have already access to the one who is able to bring about the best purposes in whatever circumstance or whatever situation we may be dealing with. So, what should we do? Let's go to him. Tell yourself, I'll go to him. You know, it's the challenge, perhaps, for most Christians is translating this knowledge that we have almost theoretical knowledge into practical situations because indeed when we are in the heat of it when we are in the truth when we're in the moment when you feel really what do you do that's when you need to preach to yourself like this so when we say say to yourself it's not just so that you can be awake say it like you mean it i will go to him so help me god